Okay. Welcome to the Environmental Justice Report with me, your producer, creator, and host, Janine Moloff. We are the show that talks about environmental issues, including environmental racism, where most of corporate media will not. <coughs> excuse me. We have mentioned and talked about, excuse me, I'm in bad voice today. Hmm. Sorry, people. It's February. Good asthma time, right? Uh, as I was saying, we have talked about environmental racism when no one else really dared do. And it's important that we do. So this week, again, we have something that really conflates environmental concerns with the law. And the reason we do this is because we live in a very, um, I'd say, desperate age. And it's an age where our political system and our legal system, in my opinion, have been um, bought and sold. I'm sorry, bought and paid for, excuse me by the 1%, the billionaire class, the corporate class, whatever you want to call it, all right, rule of law has been turned into an absolute mockery. And that applies also to environmental concerns. So if you look at the advert we put out here, um, it basically says Clean Air Act versus the Supreme Court. And then the subtitle, We Are Screwed. So the Supreme Court accepted a case last month that could decide the fate of the Clean Air Act and the subsequent duty of the EPA to regulate pollution emissions. That case is simply called West Virginia versus EPA, and it actually is a series of cases that have been lumped together under this umbrella name. Now, this case is about far more than the specific details of the complaint that was brought to the Supreme Court. Um, this case could be the final death blow to federal regulation of really anything due to what's called the non-delegation doctrine. And that's something that's really been pushed by uh, conservative justice Neil Gorsuch, as well as federal, uh, fellow conservative corporatists on the court. And it's uh, one of those, I, I refer to it as a legal fiction. People, legal scholars refer to it as a legal fiction as well. Um, I wrote about this in BuzzFlash, where I dealt with both legal fictions that are taking place right now that have been revised by the conservatives of the court. And one is the major questions doctrine, and the other is the non-delegation doctrine. So if you get a chance to um, look at it in BuzzFlash, also in op-ed news, you'll see how basically these conservatives on the court are saddling um, these agencies with such um, such demands that it would be it's de facto dismantling because if they get their way, any regulation or enforcement would have such a log jam that nothing could get done. But we're going to get into that in a little bit. So I wrote on this advert again, I wouldn't call Justices Gorsuch, Alito, Thomas, Roberts, Kavanaugh, and Coney Barrett conservatives because they don't seek to conserve anything but the status quo, which is the reign of what has been called by some corporate capture. And using this court-created legal fiction, namely the non-delegations doctrine, Gorsuch and Friends, to borrow a phrase from those morons at Fox, Gorsuch and Friends will attempt to complete a formula which will essentially render federal regulations inoperable. 
and result in the, the completion of a total corporate run state. And that is something we never want to see. So we're going to talk about that, and, and this is really a big case. And we'll also talk about the, uh, the lower court case that, that began this whole snowball into hell, okay? So there was, um, so basically, this is the case of West Virginia versus EPA. Again, on the surface, it looks benign enough. But, you know, that's the trick with the Supreme, with Supreme Court cases. They almost always seem really nondescript at first. But what you need to remember is that these cases can drastically affect what's called precedent. And everything in our jurisprudence is really ruled by precedent, not to be uh, confused with the idea of the President of the United States. This is precedent, spelled P-R-E-C-E-D-E-N-T. In other words, what preceded what you're bringing to the court now, we're going to refer back to, okay? We're going to rely on what some of the things we said was okay in the first place and build on that. And this case of West Virginia versus EPA is, is a hell of a whopper. Uh, it really does have the potential to dismantle, to have the effect of dismantling every regulatory agency. Now, um, I first published a much more in-depth article in BuzzFlash and then ran again in Op-Ed News, and I saw some of the comments. You know, the comments were saying, oh, this is hyperbole, you know, because it doesn't technically dismantle these regulatory agencies. Well, it may not technically dismantle, but the idea behind the non-delegation doctrine is that one branch of government can't delegate and give away their responsibilities and powers to another branch of government. That's what it boils down to. And if these regulatory agencies have to run to Congress to get a permission slip every time they either want to enforce something or every time they want to issue a regulation, then everything is just caught in this quagmire. Everything's a huge logjam. Nothing happens. So it has the effect of dismantling this government uh, of agencies, if you will. So, you know, these commenters, they love nitpicking, but... You know, that's the peanut gallery, right? Uh, they have the nerve to write comments, but they don't have the gumption to actually write an article and, you know, do the research. But anyway, I digress. Um, so really what this is, non-delegation doctrine is basically saying that one branch of government cannot delegate, in other words, give away or transfer the responsibilities and power to another branch of government. And we're going to get into this in a little bit, but basically there, I think it was in the, it was the, I think in the 80s, either 70s or 80s, we'll get into it in a minute, there was this other thing called the Chevron Doctrine, and what it did was it allowed um, government agencies the ability to issue regulations based on their areas of expertise because it was felt that one, you have to be able to delegate authority, otherwise you will get nothing done in a large organization. You can't have that level of micromanagement um, or everything comes to a grinding halt. And anybody who's worked in a large organization or in a big company knows this. Okay? Anyone who's been in a position of, uh, you know, large, large amount of responsibility knows this as well. You can't do it all yourself. You have to delegate. It's teamwork. That's how you get things done. And Chevron basically said, you know, we can basically have these agencies run by experts in those affiliated fields, 
and that they will essentially be able to issue reasonable regulations based on the guidance that the law gives in very broad terms. All right, that's what it was about. Those that push non-delegation would have these agencies trot to Congress every time they need to do anything, which you know won't work. So this is really about doing a sneaky end run on government regulation. So it has the effect of dismantling, dismantling every regulate, regulatory agency. And you have to remember, I don't think the average citizen realizes how much we depend on these, these agencies. Look at the Food and Drug Administration. You know, one of the reasons why American consumers feel they can go to the grocery store and be assured that that pound of ground shuck they buy is safe for consumption is because of that agency that, that regulates the industry. Uh, you know that if you basically, um, you know, buy, your doctor gives you a prescription, you can be you can be fairly certain that it's reasonably safe again because a government agency of experts looked it over and said, yeah, this is reasonable, you can do this. Do any of us really want a bunch of, I'm just going to say it, dumb businessmen and greedy lawyers to run every agency when they have no expertise in those areas. Do you want a lawyer or, for, not just a lawyer, would you want the pillow guy, for instance, the my pillow guy, to write regulations on, say, storage of nuclear waste? Or would you want the my pillow guy or, again, you know, some of these Republican lawyers writing regulations on you know, whether or not your local grocer can sell you tainted meat. This is what it's about. And we rely on this for our daily lives. I mean, keep in mind, if the, if the private markets, excuse me, if the private markets could be trusted to be honest and do what is in the best interest of the community, then we wouldn't need laws at all. But before these agencies came about, you know, look back to the early 1900s. You held your breath every time you bought meat at the butcher because there was no way to assure you that it wasn't tainted. You don't have to look any further than reading Upton Sinclair's classic, The Jungle, to see to understand the conditions. You know, these agencies came about for a good reason. Because the fact is, in a predatory capitalist system like we have, the, the uh, business community is only interested in making more and more profit. They don't care if they sell you something that is tainted. They don't care if they sell you something that's dangerous. They just don't care. For how long did the tobacco industry lie? They knew the medical risk of using tobacco. They knew it was directly linked and caused cancer, and they lied for decades. Do you honestly think these same people can be trusted with regulations governing, say, the storage of nuclear waste or ensuring that, oh, those pollutants they spew out into the air really won't poison your kid? Or the, wa the water you drink, just because it smells bad like it does in Hawaii, because the Navy hasn't taken care of their business, they polluted their water? 
you're supposed to trust them that it's okay if your kid drinks that water that's brown and smells bad. No, it isn't okay. That's why these agencies came about. It's really that simple. Okay, the, the fact is you have to, if you want to trust in a society, that's fine, but you always verify, and that's one of the functions these agencies serve. We don't have to look any further than, you know, basically, what, a month ago when the tornadoes hit in the Midwest, the Amazon Fulfillment Center in Edwardsville, Illinois, the Mayfield uh, Candle uh, Factory in Mayfield, Kentucky, these people were threatened with their livelihood if they dared leave and find a safe place to shelter because neither building really had much of a safe place to shelter. And people died. You know, in the Mayfield, Kentucky instance, they had been receiving weather reports and warnings all day long that this killer tornado was heading their way. And those workers were threatened. Now, at least they have some recourse, or the families do. They can go through OSHA and go after the Occupational Safety and Health Commission. They can go after that employer. Without these agencies, they don't have a leg to stand on. That's what we're dealing with here. People die because big business can pretty much do what it wants. And they get away with more now because a lot of these agencies have been defanged. So let's move on here, okay? And this is what the GOP is wanting, and actually, not just Republicans, all right? I despise the GOP. I'll make no, no bones about it. But I also despise corporate Democrats, neoliberals. These are the, you know, the pseudo-liberals of the party, you know. They're the ones that basically are pretty much the same on, uh, on fiscal issues as Republicans, okay? The rest of us were nothing but cannon fodder. And if we die at the workplace, they really couldn't care less as long as we don't cost them money. So these agencies are important because you don't really have any recourse to stand up against a corporate Goliath. You just don't. You can't even afford to, to lawyer up. Let's be real here. So this is what the Republicans and, yes, some corporate Democrats have been looking to do for a very long time. You know, how do we dismantle government regulations so that the billionaire class can get away with, literally, with murder? Can, the billionaire class can do what they damn well please and never face any sort of consequences legally. That's what this is about. Keep in mind, Grover Norquist, the darling of the GOP and libertarian idiots as well, used to brag about how he didn't really want to destroy government. He just wanted to shrink it enough so they could drown it in a bathtub. That tells you everything you need to know about these people. They are basically corporate aristocrats. Seriously. And we are just the peons that they feel they can abuse at will and we should have absolutely no right to, to a better deal. That's what they're about. And this issue of the non-delegation doctrine it's one way of getting it done and giving it the appearance of judicial legitimacy, which it doesn't have. And keep in mind, both the major questions doctrine and the non-delegation doctrine 
they're not written into any law. They are these rhetorical devices that the Supreme Court made up. Okay, I just love this idea because the originalists on the court, the originalists, the textualists, the ones that say the Constitution is dead, 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 and if it's not mentioned there, it doesn't exist. But they go around then and they make stuff up, like the non-delegation doctrine and the major questions doctrine, although they have no legal legitimacy. So apparently these originalists and textualists, they only like originalism when it works on their behalf. All right, that's not really being a jurist or a, or a justice. That's not respecting rule of law. That is being an aristocrat. That is making a mockery of rule of law. So this first, this story here, there was a huge piece in Vox written by Ian Milheiser, who's a wonderful writer. Now, let me give you some information about Ian Milheiser, okay? Now, first of all, the article was published this past November, okay, November 3rd, 2021, and it was in Vox, and Vox does this thing called explanatory journalism, which is lovely. If you don't understand something, this piece explains it to you, all right? And the headline is, quote, a new Supreme Court case could gut the government's power to fight climate change. Neil Gorsuch's dream case could be the Earth's nightmare. That says it all right there. So the man who wrote this piece, Ian Milheiser, let's talk a little about him first, okay? Let me get another little sip of tea here. Not in great voice today. Ian Milheiser is a senior correspondent in Vox, and his uh, specific focus deals with the Supreme Court, the Constitution, and what he calls, quote, the decline of liberal democracy in the United States. Okay? Now, before he joined Vox, he was a columnist at Think Progress. Uh, professionally, besides that, he clerked. He is an attorney, and he... Um, his, he received his, uh, his BA in philosophy from Kenyon College and his law degree from Duke University, magna cum laude. He was a senior note editor on the Duke Law Journal and was elected to what they call the Order of the Quaff. All right. Um, he clerked for Judge Eric L. Clay of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. And he's the author of a book titled Injustices, the Supreme Court's History of Comforting the Comfortable and Afflicting the Afflicted. Okay? Love that title. It just says it all. So let's talk about this article down. This is, there's many articles, but this one's the best, in my opinion. Okay? So another sip of tea here. It's February, and February is my worst asthma month, so... Bear with me. Hopefully I won't start coughing. So, again, let's go back to the headline. A new Supreme Court case could gut the government's power to fight climate change. Neil Gorsuch's dream case could be the Earth's nightmare. Okay. So the Supreme Court, uh, basically about a week or so, well, a couple weeks ago, actually, announced that they would hear cases that were really very similar. And they are, 
probably going to be consolidated under the name of West Virginia, West Virginia versus the Environmental Protection Agency. And for simplicity's sake, I'll just say EPA. So it's West Virginia versus EPA. But these cases under that title could be some of the most consequential and important court decisions in the, the recent court history. So here's what happened. These cases are the most recent uh, cases brought with this constant litigation against uh, former President Obama's clean power plan. Now, keep in mind, this is the part you have to understand here. President Obama's clean power plan was never implemented, never. And according to Milheiser, quote, it still exists in a zombie-like state, okay, end quote. So the fossil fuel industry keeps fighting it, all right? So there was a federal appeals court decision, uh, according to casetext.com, and it was American Lung Association v. EPA. They revised the plan last January, but the Biden administration said a month after that that it was not going to reinstate the Obama policy, and you can find that on epa.gov. You can also just, you know, go and look at this article yourself. So. Even though this plan is not going to be implemented, the petitioners in this case, West Virginia versus EPA, these are red states, they are energy companies and owners of coal mines, they are continually fighting this, okay? And they want the Supreme Court to rule in their favor and say that the Federal Clean Air Act does not authorize President Obama's plan. So. You have to kind of think of this as uh, apparently the clean power plan was going to be like an addition to the Federal Clean Air Act and was going to be authorized under the Federal Clean Air Act. So they want the Supreme Court to say, no, President Obama's uh, clean power plan is not authorized under the Federal Clean Air Act. It's not specific enough. It doesn't allow it. Aside from that, according to Milheiser, these particular uh, claimants, they want to, they want new limits on the Clean Air Act itself. And these limits would severely restrict the EPA's ability to reduce greenhouse emissions in the future. Okay? And that's according to Vox.com. So that's a lot right there, but that's still, according to Milheiser, just the beginning or as he puts it, the tip of the iceberg. And here's the thing, but we're going to get into the true danger, which is the Federalist Society that's behind Gorsuch and behind this non-delegation doctrine, which is really an attack on rule of law itself, but a sneak attack. So some of the parties in the West Virginia litigation are claiming that it is unconstitutional for the EPA, I'm just going to read this as is. So, According to this quote, some parties in the West Virginia litigation, quote, claim that it is unconstitutional for the EPA to take the sort of aggressive strides against climate change that the Obama administration took in its clean power plan. This theory wouldn't just strip the EPA of much of its power to fight climate change. It could potentially disable Congress's ability to effectively protect the environment, end quote. Now, I'll add there's more relevance of a more dangerous nature 
the stakes are higher and the implications for true rule of law are far more substantial and dire. And here's why. The most aggressive arguments against the Clean Power Plan, this is where it gets broader. What these claimants have done under non, they've claimed it. The most aggressive arguments against the Clean Power Plan wouldn't just apply to the EPA and environmental regulation. They could theoretically also, quote, fundamentally alter the structure of the U.S. government stripping away the government's power on issues as diverse as workplace safety, environmental protection, access to birth control, overtime pay, and vaccination. And this is according to the Supreme Court. I'm sorry, this is according to Vox.com. And, um, yeah, well, Vox.com. And theoretically using the non-delegation, they would use the non-delegation um, doctrine as the vehicle to do all this, all right, the justification. And theoretically, hundreds of laws could be so severely weakened that they're essentially nullified or deactivated. Some laws would be gone for good. And trying to get these laws back on the books, you'd have to pass legislation all over again with the filibuster still intact. Good luck with that. That's not going to happen. So this is the true danger. They're planning on using the non-del, or rather just Gorsuch is planning on using, and these plaintiffs, the non-delegation doctrine, which again is something the court made up, to justify stripping all these government agencies of the ability to issue regulations, because it would attack the Chevron, um, the Chevron doctrine, which allows them to create regulations uh, as long as the regulations are consistent with the more general law that as, as written. If they use non-delegation, will require every agency to come back to Congress and literally get a permission slip just to do their job. That's what it boils down to. And, you know, these conservatives are not stupid. They know that this would basically create such chaos that everything would come to a grinding halt, thus a de facto dismantling of government agencies. That's how they plan on doing it. So. And, and that's the real danger here. It, this case is not just about limiting what the EPA can do. This case is broader than that, potentially, where it could literally strip away the government's power to have these agencies issue any regulation that wasn't specifically mentioned in the original legislation on everything from workplace safety, birth control, overtime pay, you name it. That's what this case is really about. And then you have to wonder, why in the world isn't corporate media explaining this? They should be, but they're not. Instead, they're doing their little horse race nonsense. Who's behind this? Well, who was behind Gorsuch in the first place? Who lobbied heavily to get somebody, an administrative judge like Neil Gorsuch, on the court, knowing full well that he would really be the one spearheading this? who lobbied to get Coney Barrett on the court and Kavanaugh, the Federalist Society. Keep in mind, the Federalist Society, they are unelected. They are anti-democracy monsters. And they cursed us with the conservatives on the SCOTUS right now, especially the ones sent by Trump. So West Virginia, 
This case looks benign, but it is a horror, it's a dangerous case. And according to Milheiser, the West Virginia case is, quote, potentially the culmination of a conservative vision incubated at the Federalist Society for years and long championed by conservative activists such as Justices Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh, end quote. It goes further. Milheiser goes on to say, quote, indeed, a majority of the court has already expressed sympathy toward Gorsuch's plans to shrink the power of federal agencies, which is a strong sign that the West Virginia petitioners are likely to prevail on at least some of their claims. Okay. Milheiser goes on to say, quote, in the worst case scenario for the Biden administration, the West Virginia case could make President Biden, quote, the weakest president of the United States in over 80 years. And that's as documented, again, by Vox. And according to Milheiser, quote, it could give a Supreme Court dominated by Republican appointees a veto power over huge swaths of federal policy. This is what's really important, too. Make no mistake about it. This is a power grab by conservatives on the Supreme Court. Okay? Could, quote, give a Supreme Court dominated by Republican appointees a veto power over huge swaths of federal policy. If there was ever an argument for reforming the court, this is it. And it's not just because I despise conservatives. Would I be saying the same thing if this were liberals doing it? Yes. Because there's supposed to be a balance of power. All right? This could dismantle decades of hard-fought laws. Decades worth. Milheiser goes on to say, quote, the West Virginia litigation seems to permanently entrench Trumpian environmental policy. End quote. All right. So to get into this a little more, the Clean Air Act, which is the older law, has a requirement that power plants have to use what's considered, quote, the best system of emission reduction. And that's according to casetext.com statute, United States Code Title 42. You can look it, you can look it up yourself. And the idea being that, um, excuse me, Clean Air Act has to use certain power plants that have the best system of emission reduction that you can achieve under existing technology, but they are, but they're also expected to take into they're also expected to factor in uh, considerations such as cost. So. The Cleaner Act isn't even that strong. Let's get this straight, all right? Yes, they're supposed to use the best uh, present technology for emission reduction, but these companies are allowed to factor in costs, so they can make the claim, theoretically, that, well, this new technology, yes, would reduce emissions far more, but it's just too costly, and they can get away with it. So the Clean Air Act isn't even that strong to start with. And then you have to look at that how the law was written. These laws are written in very broad and vague terms. And that's kind of a problem too, especially the vagueness of it. I can understand a law being broad, having a broad um, principle, but without specific criterion, I do have a little problem with it. And the vague nature of these, the way these laws are written, 
really invites judicial, um, not just judicial interference, judicial corruption. Okay, I mean, Milheiser Milheiser raises the point, and it's it's a good one. You know, who would determine what constitutes the best the quote best system of emission of emission reduction? It's a good question. And then I would go a little further and ask, you know, why did the Obama team write such a poorly worded law? I mean, the phrase is so vague. I, I could drive an 18-wheeler through a solitary loophole. And this, this concern addresses the fact that both parties continually write laws that are filled with vague, poorly defined criterion, if they cited any criterion at all, and they do so to protect corporate interests. So on the one hand, it looks like they wrote this law that is a good law that will actually protect us, but it really doesn't because it's so poorly worded. And, um, you know, if the Obama team had written a law um, and fought for specific goals with specific criteria, this wouldn't be happening. You know, for example, the Obama team could have written criterion and goals which correspond with international United Nations agreements on reducing climate devastation. But instead they wrote an indefensible law knowing it would be dismantled. All the while, corporate Democrats could pretend to be the good cop to the GOP's bad cop. Unacceptable. Now, under the Clean Air Act, the answer to these questions, or at least some of them, is that the EPA's job is to do a couple of things. One, there, the EPA's job, uh, one of the things the EPA has to do is they have to study changing technologies. That's one. They have to determine when, when a new breakthrough should be adopted by power plants. And then three, they have to order those plants to use that technology by issuing binding regulations. Okay? And there, under certain circumstances, the power plant doesn't actually have to use the exact same technology preferred by the EPA. They could use an alternative method, um, but they usually are only allowed to do so if they can come close to achieving the same levels of emission reduction that would be um, obtained by using the EPA's preferred methods. The clean power plan did go a little further. It didn't just call, it didn't just demand that coal-firing power plants install devices that would make them burn more efficiently. The clean power plan by the Obama administration also demanded that power plants, quote, shift away from coal and toward cleaner methods of generating energy. And that's according to casetech.com, uh, and that's the American Lung Association versus the EPA case. And shift away from coal towards uh, alleged cleaner methods of generating energy like natural gas, uh, but also they, they were told to uh, shift to methods that produce no emissions at all, like solar. And the West Virginia petitioners made the claim that the EPA cannot make that requirement. They can't require that big a shift. And, um, you know, in 2016, just days before the late Antonin Scalia passed away, um, the justices on the Supreme Court voted five to four to halt the clean power plan. And that's, you know, was documented by Vox.com. And so then, you know, Trump got in office 
And the very beginning, this is ironic, the clean power plan, um, no, I'm sorry, let me take that. So the clean power plan's opponents did have some allies in Trump and his EPA. So Trump's EPA, when they got in, they announced a new policy that they called the Affordable Clean Energy Rule, which basically tossed the clean power plan and replaced it with much weaker, ineffectual rules. And the Trump era rules actually um, encouraged coal plants to install technologies, things like what's called upgraded suit blowers and boiler feed pumps, which would reduce emissions marginally, but that's it. And a federal appeals court uh, issued an opinion striking down the, the rules of the Trump administration and basically said, quote, the EPA predicted that its ACE rule, the Trump rule, in other words, would reduce carbon dioxide emissions by less than 1% from baseline emission projections by 2035. And that prediction was optimistic. It was actually worse. So the Trump rules were not only useless, they basically were a green light for coal plants and other polluters to just do whatever they damn well please. Trump's EPA did admit that the that its recommended technologies could, ironically, they admitted it could increase emissions. But they also said it would reduce the cost of producing energy with coal. And you know, like everything Trumpian, you know, everything is a dollar sign. You know, the fact that we're destroying this planet is irrelevant to them. So, anyway. So, anyway, um, the appeals court opinion that struck it down, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> oh, dear. Sorry about this, folks. So, it's that appeals court decision that struck down what Trump wanted that is being reviewed and has been accepted by the Supreme Court to consider. Now, you have to look at, you get, you get a little information here on how federal agencies actually create policy. So the Clean Air Act, which is the you know, older law, it um, worked by this type of government, governance that is throughout our federal government um, which is basically delegating things, all right? So, for instance, Congress might write in the law a very broad goal in policy. Maybe the power plants have to use, quote, the best system of emission reduction. Then what happens is after the law is passed, the, these agencies have, power, have basically authority delegated to them, like the EPA, and through that delegation of power, these agencies that are supposed to be, um, you know, run by experts in that ver in whatever field they're supposed to govern, they actually write policy through a series of what are called binding regulations. Okay, and most federal statutes really do rely on this structure. I predict maybe 90%. So if you say that these agencies can't do that not only can't do that, but that everything they've done for the past maybe 60 years isn't legitimate, then everything comes to a grinding halt. And that's what they're using. So, for instance, the Affordable Care Act requires health insurers to provide preventative treatments like birth control, 
a lot of vaccinations, cancer screenings, and they can't charge you anything extra for that. So basically, here's what happens. Um, the task of determining which treatments belong on a list is given to experts in those fields at the Department of Health and Human Services. You know, the Department of Labor, you know, is the one that, you know, determines whether the salary threshold is going to be uh, raised, um, you know, and which workers are eligible for overtime pay, things like that. They deal, they write regulations covering that. Um, and can you imagine if these agencies weren't allowed this, I'd say, moderate level of authority, nothing would get done. Congress is already totally dysfunctional. I mean, let's be real here. Um, and so this is what we're dealing with. So when you delegate power to agencies and you have these agencies run by people that are experts in that field, then, you know, you're going to hopefully get some reasonable regulation. Big business doesn't like it because, again, big corporate entities don't want anything to interfere with them collecting every penny in existence. You know, these people would make Ebenezer Scrooge look like a piker. And, and think about it for a minute. Well, imagine what it would be like if Congress had to pass a law every time, for instance, the Food and Drug Administration wanted to make a new, wanted to make a new drug available. All right? And, and so, this is why you have this authority delegated to these experts and these agencies. Delegation of authority like that also kind of protects against political horse trading. All right. I mean, let's talk about the Food and Drug Administration, for example. This part of their duties is to make sure that when you go into the grocery store, the food you buy is safe for consumption. Okay. Um, I don't know what's going on here. Somebody called in, and that's really weird. I'm going to ignore it. So let's say they make sure that, um, go back, the food and drug, this is what's really distracting. One of the reasons I don't like taking calls because I prepare things and this is distracting. But anyway, let's get back to this. Food and Drug Administration, one of the jobs they have is to make sure that, for instance, when you do your weekly grocery shopping, that the things you buy are safe for human consumption. All right? Would you really want somebody in charge of that agency that, say, doesn't know anything about food safety, but they own stock in, you know, a big um, agribusness? You know, would the regulations they push for, would they be honest or would they benefit them? I'm sorry, this is just reality here. So this is what we're dealing with. But they're basing this dismantling of agency delegation on this theory of this, this constitutional doctrine known as non-delegation. Now, it has a long history, even though, again, it's not part of anything written into the Constitution. It's not part of any actual law. This is something that a past Supreme Court made up. Nothing else. There's not much, there's not much, uh, that's not very democratic, frankly. So non-delegation is the idea that the Constitution has these very strict limits on 
Congress's ability to delegate or give power to any agency. Now, the Supreme Court did use non-dele- the non-delegation doctrine for a short period of time back in FDR's time to try and destroy New Deal policies. And they argued that without non-delegation, um, you could have a president with unlimited power. And so the doctrine then laid dormant for many generations. So, for instance, there was this one part of the New Deal, and it had a lot of good stuff in it, too, as well as some bad stuff. And it was, uh, let me see if I can find it here. I think the case was ALA Schechter versus poultry business. Anyway, part of what uh, Roosevelt had done is he had passed this part of the New Deal that granted a lot of power to a president. You know, it also granted the right of workers um, to, um, you know, to collectively, uh, you know, to collectively arbitrate for their own rights. Um, and the court struck it down. And uh, then it just was gone for a long time. So came back, this non-delegation issue. And uh, it was brought back by Justices Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Clarence Thomas in some separate stuff. Now, the strongest form of non-delegation is unexplained was uh, advocated by Clarence Thomas in a 2015 opinion, okay? And that's according, it's documented by supreme.justia.com. And this one, what Clarence Thomas was saying is that agencies would be just totally forbidden from creating any binding regulations of any kind, okay? And Justice Thomas's excuse is that, uh, quote, any government decision that involves an exercise of policy discretion also requires an exercise of legislative power, end quote. So if if the court went with Clarence Thomas's idea of non-delegation, major bodies of law like the Clean Air Act would be totally forbidden because, again, these agencies craft, they, they, they crafted uh, a series of binding regulations that really gave structure to this very vague law, okay? You know, what good is a law if you don't have policies to implement and to enforce it? Passing the law is only part of it. You have to have a structure of regulations for implementation and for enforcement, period. So this would, Clarence Thomas's viewpoint would just say, no, no agency can ever create any binding regulations. It's totally unconstitutional. And so everything would come to a, a, a grinding halt. Now, according to Milheiser, the author of this big article, he basically said, you know, most of the justices on the court, including the other conservatives, they didn't want to go that far. Instead, they uh, kind of sided with Neil Gorsuch uh, when Gorsuch laid out a dissenting opinion in a case known as Gundy v. United States. Now, this is a vague standard. Okay, I'm just going to get into it a little bit here. And this, what Gorsuch wrote in Gundy, in a dissent, that is, he basically said that a federal, a federal law which authorizes an agency to, you know, create regulations must be, quote, 
sufficiently definite and precise to enable Congress, the courts, and the public to ascertain whether Congress's guidance has been followed. Okay. Could he get any more vague? And that's what it is. It's a very vague standard. It is, in, according to Milheiser, it's inconsistent with the framers and how they understood the Constitution. You know, again, these originalists love to go back to the founding fathers. Well, the founding fathers, a lot of people who drafted the Constitution, actually did delegate quite a bit of power to executive branch officials. <clears throat> and that's according to a document by papers.ssrn.com. Again, you can go to the article, look it up yourself. But once again, what Gorsuch wrote, the idea that a federal law could authorize an agency to create these regulations, to create this, this structure to implement and enforce a law, that that particular federal law must be written in such a way that the authorization must be, quote, sufficiently definite and precise to enable Congress, the courts, and the public to ascertain whether Congress's guidance has been followed. Okay. And you have to remember, this really does transfer and, and, and collect a lot of power for the judiciary. Okay. You know, one of the things that Ian Milheiser in this piece is arguing is that the court is basically stealing power. They're taking power from these regulatory agencies and transferring it to the Supreme Court. And then he goes on to say, phrase, sufficient, that uh, a law must be, quote, sufficiently definite and precise. The public can ascertain whether Congress's guidance has been followed. What does that mean? Okay. There's no way of telling. What it means really is that the courts, the, the local, the state courts, the federal courts, and the ultimately Supreme Court, they're going to decide themselves. This, if non-delegation is allowed to stand, this would, get, this would give the courts, especially the Supreme Court, a new veto power to strike down any federal regulation that they, the conservatives don't like, and on the grounds that, well, but it exceeds Congress's power to delegate authority. Congress, saying Congress didn't have the right to create this administrative structure so that they could implement and enforce the law. That's what they're saying. And they're saying that only the courts, the supreme priest, magically know what these words mean. It's nonsense. Okay? But it gets worse. This is where Gorsuch shows his true colors. He would also apply this rule retroactively to statutes that are drafted long before the Gundy decision. And that would have profound implications. Keep in mind, that particular part of the Clean Air Act that the West Virginia case is arguing was created in 1970. The Nixon era Congress didn't think about all these things. There's no way they could have known how technology was going to progress. Okay. But in my opinion, this, the Gorsuch approach to non-delegation, this made-up power, effectively grants dictatorial powers to the courts, especially the Supreme Court. And, and you have to remind yourself, Supreme Court justices have a lifetime appointment. Gorsuch's approach to non-delegation, it wouldn't just strip Congress of their power to delegate authority to agencies. 
it would grant power to the most conservative group of justices to sit on the Supreme Court since FDR. Now, I would also say the conservatives on this court, I would compare them to Justice Taney. Okay? Justice Taney, that's the Supreme Court judge who wrote the vile, evil Dred Scott decision claiming that blacks were three-fifths of a person and thus property. And I would say the conservatives on this court, their intent is to just to basically invalidate and destroy hundreds of laws and, and hundreds of, of regulations, all right, because they made up this power. And the idea would be, and this is what Milheiser wrote, this case, quote, this case could begin dismantling any democracy. West Virginia contains the seeds of a constitutional revolution. It could, as Roosevelt warned in 1937, enable the Supreme Court to make our democracy impotent, end quote. Okay. Now, there's, we haven't talked about the major question doctrine today, and we're going to have this, this show's going to be a little shorter because we'll focus that on another time. But this is what we're dealing with right now. When you take doctrines like non-delegation, and we'll discuss major questions at another time, um, non-delegation threatens to retroactively undo and, and nullify decades of progressive legislation. And then when you have, when you partner that with um, the administrative filibuster, where only the threat is all it takes, it, together that ensures that no bill will become law. It means that the corporate monarchist could run roughshod over the rest of us and we would have no legal recourse to defend ourselves against these corporate monarchists, period. Okay? So, we're going to just um, move on to the conclusion. All right? We're going to kind of make this, because there's so much information here, we're going to get into it at a later date. I'm just going to put this out here. By now, it is patently clear that the legal profession has done little to protect any semblance of democratic rule. Instead, they prefer to drag out any legal proceeding on the uh, infamous altar of billable hours. There are no heroes in this story. The GOP of Trump has proven its historic hostility and contempt for democracy, while cowardly democratic centrists do what they do best, nothing except cower and hide. The mainstream, corporate-owned media, they'd have us believe there's nothing we can do to save democracy. They're wrong. We must resist. And resistance begins, in my opinion, with a series of national strikes. Corporate attorneys and corporate law firms lose power when the corporations they represent fire them. These same corporate law firms must also face professional accountability, and that means allowing lay people on licensure boards. Corporate attorneys cannot continue to practice as if they know 
I'm sorry, corporate attorneys cannot continue to practice if they no longer hold a, a, hold a license to practice law. And again, we are basically outgunned here. We just are. We've got corporate monarchists on one side that can lawyer up, you know, far more. It would take us a million years to lawyer up to the same level as they do in a day. Just the case. And then we've got the legal profession that, again, they're going to work for who has the bucks. And that power imbalance is incredibly dangerous. And we don't have too many low-cost law schools. Let's face facts here. The practice of law is a rich man's profession and rich women. And there's a handful of people that, you know, maybe they get a scholarship. But the fact is we need law schools for the people. We need law schools that are affordable, even if it's part-time, so we can create enough lawyers and they can afford to work for less than. So we can have some representation. And this is more than that. You know, for too long, I have friends that went to law school. Our nation's law schools have wrongfully taught that attorneys are the nation's lawgivers. They're not. The people, the people are the nation's lawgivers. What they call rule of law has become an amalgam of double talk and vague language and professional jargon whose true meaning even evades top legal experts. And the only reason for such surface-level complexity and vague language, which lacks any meaningful substance, it's like any con artist. It's to confound, confuse, and hide injustice behind a wall of jargon more similar to what, you know, what you heard admitted at the biblical tower of Babel, more similar to that than legitimate rhetoric. The law, as I said before, is unreachable to most. Only the 1% can afford most legal representation outside of a class action suit. Furthermore, when the law only furthers the demands of co corporate oligarchs, it becomes a mockery and a fraud. Now, this show focuses on environmental justice, but we have to remember that there can be no environmental justice when there's no justice, no actual justice. Reform has to happen. First of all, the law must be written in plain terms, which the average person can understand. There's no legitimate need for this jargon. Outside of its use is maybe a professional shorthand for practitioners. Anytime jargon's used, the attorneys must be forced to explain it in plain terms. You know, law and order types love to pontificate and explain that, quote, ignorance of the law is no excuse. Ha, huh. I'd argue it's unreasonable to demand compliance with laws that are written in such incomprehensible jargon and vague criterion that you can't even know what the hell the law is unless you hire an attorney. And we're not going to get any of this until we realize we have to all stick together. And we're, this is going to take a series of general strikes where, as my friends in Black Lives Matter and other groups say, we have to shut this shit down. It's time to put the legal profession on notice, and it's time to put big money on notice. They wouldn't have these factories. They wouldn't have these products if all of us di didn't sell our time and our skills and our efforts to create these products. 
you know, later on we're going to talk about this time for not just one general strike. That won't do it. We need a series of general strikes and wildcat it. And then while we're on general strike, with the exception of emergency services, meaning emergency medical and fire, to hell with the police, and I mean it, but then we need to be helping each other. You know, if your neighbor needs some help cleaning their gutters, help them. You know, that's the thing. This division only helps the rich. As I say in progressive circles, it's time to shut this shit down. The only way we're going to reform everything. That's it. We have to get more like the French, and when we're screwed over, we hit the streets en masse. Again and again and again. With no warning. And then we help our neighbors. Period. It's what has to happen. So now you know a little something about what's happening with the Clean Air Act, the case of West Virginia versus EPA, and the fiction known as the non-delegation doctrine. We'll be talking about it more. I know I kind of went off topic a bit. But, again, you need to realize what's been going on around you and understand it. And you can check this out on your own. You can also, uh, you know, read my articles on BuzzFlash and then also on Op-Ed News. I'm actually a much better writer than I am a broadcaster. Stick together, folks. We just do. That's, that's all there is to it. So with that, I will say good night and God bless.